How to Play, Episode 41, Mage Knight. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone, thank you once again for tuning in to How to Play. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from Western New York, and today we're going to talk about Mage Knight. And this episode is being recorded on October 20th, 2012. So we'll get to Mage Knight in just a minute, but first we must recognize our sponsors for this episode, and this is the great supporters of the Western United States, the great folks of the West whose long-ago ancestors went down the Oregon Trail in covered wagons, or maybe they flew there a couple years ago, I'm not really sure, but some of them must have gone on the Oregon Trail, their great descendants, a game which brings back very fine memories of giving my friends dysentery and such. Hopefully some of you played that that great Oregon Trail game. But I digress. Let's talk about our supporters here. We had a lot of supporters from the West. Huzzah to the folks of Arizona. We have Michael, Brian, Will, and Dion. Thank you to the folks of California. Thank you to Luke, Darren, Mark, Charles, Lisa, Michael M, Michael G, Mike P, Ronald, Sarah, Jeremy, Philip. Then we have four fine folks holding up the honor of their state all by themselves. We have Joel for Idaho, Chris for New Mexico, John for Nevada, and William for the beautiful state of Oregon. And finally, my Washington supporters are Dean, Greg, and Brian. And speaking of the West, somehow in an earlier episode, I missed West Virginia. We had supporter Christopher Ross from West Virginia. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you very much, folks, for making this episode possible. So today we are covering the very popular game that was released just last year in 2011, designed by famed designer Vlada Shavato. If you've never heard of him before, uh, you should know him from such famous games as Through the Ages and Galaxy Trucker and Dungeon Lords. It is possible to play this game with one to four players. I highly recommend it with one as a solo game or two players. I think it could be okay with three if you have people who know the game, but the turns do take very long, which is why I do not recommend it for playing with four players. So what do I love about this game? Well, I actually picked this game up. I mentioned it's good as a solo game. When my son Sven was born, I was thinking, you know what, I'm probably going to get out to game night less, and so it might be nice and fun to have a game that's really good to play solo and this game was recommended by a lot of people as as a fantastic solo game and it does hold up to that recommendation and the reason why it does is because it's a very puzzly game it's so much of the game experience is puzzling out the you sort of against the system of trying to play the game the best way possible with those cards in your hand without a lot of other input necessary from your opponents 
The game does have a very well-integrated theme. In fact, I noticed it was just ranked number one as the best thematic game there at Board Game Geek. It really gives you the experience by these integrated mechanics of feeling like you're roaming the countryside, defeating monsters, and getting stronger uh, because it's got terrain elements. It's got monsters all with thematic special abilities. It's got different unique characters with uh, thematically related skills. You're going to get these cool abilities. You'll get these neat spells and, and artifacts, like you might have a, a really neat ring or, or find a very cool sword that'll help you fight better. So a lot of those thematic elements are worked into the game, and a lot of times when you have a thematic game, it, it compromises that with sort of weak or lame mechanics or a lot of die rolling, but this game blends that integrated theme with a lot of creative, well-used mechanics to create this awesome fantasy adventure game that a lot of people have been waiting for 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 decades. You know, Magic Realm came out uh, long, long ago. I covered that on the show. I think that this provides that game experience that Magic Realm really wanted to. Um, Mr. Richard Hamlin did his best with the mechanics he had at the time, but I think using current game technology of, of deck building and a lot of other ideas that have been developed... Mr. Shavadal has been able to, to create a really successful, fun fantasy adventure game. Now, that's the, the good side of it. What, what are some of the negative elements of, of who won't like this game? Well, first of all, I kind of avoided this game primarily at first because it just it has an enormous geek factor. First of all, it's called Mage Knight the Board Game, which is... I don't know, I don't really feel that great about the name. The cover art, it's this cartoony fantasy that can kind of turn me off. I had the same sort of issue with Dungeon Lords. I don't like that sort of cartoony fantasy look. I prefer more of a, a classic fantasy sort of Larry Elmore look, I guess. And even some of the elements, uh, as I opened the box, kind of made me cringe. You know, the, the one of the characters is called a blood cultist. One of the characters is cartoony, dragony. And that initially really turned me off to the game, to be quite honest. And it's not that I, I don't like fantasy. I, I played Magic for 10 years. I played Dungeons & Dragons. But even to me, uh, the level of geekitude of this game did turn me off a bit, to be quite honest. And I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old a little bit. But, you know, you want to have games on your shelf when people look at them. They, they don't get sort of weirded out. Or even, you know, when my son and my daughter gets older, I want to, you know, play the game and introduce it to them without it being, I don't know, of, of such a high geek factor that this game has. I also really see it as a plus when you have themes or other games. I know this is something Mark Johnson talked about uh, on his podcast about geek themes and, and how they can be a turnoff. And I like to have games that I can, you know, bring out with people who aren't geeks, you know, and this, this certainly doesn't qualify as one of those games. This is going to be only a game you're going to be able to bring out with people who that fantasy genre does appeal to. And, and even some people like me who do like the fantasy genre, it, it is really over the top with its, its geekness. But, but the good news is, is that the game is so much fun and very strategic and interesting with its mechanics that even if people who initially, like me, that get turned off by the initial look of the game when they play it, they're going to very much enjoy the game. However, 
its plus side as a great solo experience can be sort of its negative side on the other end of things. If you're looking for an interactive game experience, this really isn't going to provide that. It says one to four players. It's really multiplayer solitaire for most of the game. There is, once you get into the game, there is a player versus player combat, but you know that's only going to occur after you know a lot of the development of the game. The bulk of the game experience is just you figuring out how to play against the system to play the game the most efficiently. And that's why it's not really, it's not a, a great multiplayer game experience. It's certainly a game that you know you could uh, I would recommend playing with maybe two players. There are competitive and cooperative scenarios. So if you had a friend that you're going to want to play and explore this game with, then it would be a good experience for that. If you're looking for a game that's just a, a good solo experience and just a game to explore by yourself, it is a good game for that. If you are looking for a game just to take out for a, a week nightly game night and play for a couple hours with four people, it is not really that game. It does sort of remind me of Through the Ages in that a lot of the game is just, you know, you against the system. And that goes back to that puzzle definition we talked about recently on Ludology and, and is why I prefer, I much prefer playing Through the Ages using the computer online implementation. And honestly, I would love a sort of online implementation of a, a solitaire version of Mage Knight. I think that would be fantastic because you can get that game experience without all these uh, zillion of components and let the, the game deal with all the math and that sort of thing. I would love for that to come out because I think that would be almost a, a better version, in my opinion, than the physical version. Although I know there's a lot of people who, who really enjoy the, the physical component of that. To me, I don't. I just think that, you know, it's a lot of work to take everything out and move it around and deal with the cards and the seven stacks of cards. So hoping something like uh, the, the online version of Through the Ages comes out for this game, Mage Knight. But that gives you a sense of what kind of experience it is not. So the complexity rating. This game is a double black diamond. The first game of this game is going to be just learning the system. There is a uh, introductory scenario that is just for that. But in order to get a, a good game experience with another player or with three players, you're going to have to have an intro game first, and then your your real true game experience will probably be the next game. Or same thing as a solo experience. The first time you play it, you're just going to learn it. And then the second time you play it, now you're going to be really trying to play the game effectively. The game has a lot of rules. A lot of uh, what makes it so thematic is because it has all these rules with these weird exceptions. And there's seven or eight different sites in the game. And each site has, you know, three or four or five different rules associated with that site. So there's a lot going on here. Very complex, only for people who really want to invest in it. And only if you want to play this game more than once, because the first time you're just going to be learning it. Uh, just a note about the length. Scenarios are played in rounds, and a normal scenario is either four or six rounds. A round takes about 45 minutes, so the shorter scenarios are still probably close to three hours. The longer scenarios, I mean, you, you can be looking at four plus hours, so it's not a short game. When I played uh, the full version solo, each session took me around four hours, probably a little bit more. I broke it into two nights of about two hours each. You know, I left it set up. So we're not talking about a short game here. The intro scenario will be a, a little shorter, though you still have to explain the rules. You're probably looking at a two to three hour intro scenario uh, with, with two players. With four players, it could be 
you know, four or five hours as you're really, you know, walking through everyone. So I would really recommend probably just sticking to training two people at a time. If you have two players, you're able to sort of minimize that think time a little bit as players are able to think out the player's turn as the other player is going. I think two players is sort of the magic number for that is you get some think time in two players. But with three players, you get to the point where you're just waiting for the turn to come back to you. And with four players, you're just waiting even longer for it to come back to you. So that's why I really recommend one or two players is, is the sweet spot here. But that gives you an idea uh, of what kind of game we're dealing with here. It's a game for people who want that fantasy adventure, who like that puzzly aspect of games, who don't mind that most of the game experience is is by themselves, and who don't mind figuring out a, a pretty complex system that is this game. And really, in my opinion, a game that's best enjoyed either on your own or with one other person or two people who already know the game really well. So I hope that gives you an idea of whether this is a game for you. Now let's get into how to play this game. As always, I recommend you actually having the game so you can look at the different components as I discuss these things. One thing I will give to this game's credit, they did, unlike a lot of the games I've covered on how to play, one of the best jobs in designing their rule set that I've ever seen in one of these complicated board games. As always, I love the two rule book format, and this game did that and did it very well. It's not perfect, but it's very well and much better than so many other games. They have a game walkthrough booklet that helps you set up and runs you through your first game, and then they have a rule book uh, book, which is just all the rules in uh, a nice organized order, and that's the way I really think these complicated games should always come out, with a book that's designed to teach you the game and with a book that's designed to list the rules. So kudos to you for that good setup. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of walk through the beginning of that walkthrough, just give you an idea of what you're doing here. It has a good description of how to set up the game, and I'll talk you through the basics of the game, basically the first 12 pages or so of that walkthrough, and then you'll be ready to start on your own, and you can go through the rest of the walkthrough. The second half of the walkthrough actually describes what happens to you as you start going through and playing the game. So my intention is to get you started here so that you're ready to play that first introductory scenario or to get you ready to explain the game to people who've never played the game of, of starting into that first introductory scenario. So let's do it. We'll start with the hook, the meat, and then give you some starting strategy so you're ready to start playing your first game of Mage Knight. And away we go. Part one, the hook, what the game is about. Welcome to Mage Knight. In this game, you are a powerful mage knight who seeks to become even more powerful by killing monsters because killing monsters is worth fame points. And that makes you even more powerful because then you climb in levels and you get even more powerful so that you can kill more monsters and earn even more fame points. So you just want to kill a lot of monsters. You start the game with this D deck of 16 cards, and you're going to begin each turn with a hand of 5 cards drawn from that deck. The cards allow you to do all the different actions in the game, but some of the most basic action the cards let you do is to move on the board and to fight those monsters, and hopefully kill them. 
on your turn, first you can move as far as you want, and then you may interact with the board. And the most common interaction is to fight monsters and hopefully kill them if they are nearby. You can use as much of your hand as you want to on your turn, and then at the end of your turn, you'll draw back up to five cards. A round of the game is either day or night. So the first round of the game will be day one, and the second round will be night one, and the third round will be day two, and so on. The players get to determine how long these rounds are by how fast they cycle through their deck. Because when a player has no more cards left to draw in his deck, he may declare the end of the round instead of taking a turn. And then all the other players will get one more turn, and then the round is over. A scenario will last between three to six of these rounds, or until an ending objective has been met. And at the end of the game, players calculate their score by getting bonus points for having the most in particular categories, and then add that to the points they've already earned from killing the monsters throughout the game. And the player with the most fame points is the winner of the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So let's talk about what we need to do before you start playing the game. First, you'll need to pick a character. There's four different characters in the game. They're 90% the same. I said there are 16 cards in those deed decks. Each character has a, a special one of those 16 cards. And as you level up, you'll get different skills. And each of the different characters has different ones of these skills. And if you really look into it, like one of the characters is, is geared towards fighting more. And one of the characters is geared more towards getting helpers to help them fight. And one of the characters is, is good at getting more magic crystals. But at the beginning, you know, don't really think about it too much and just pick the one you think is the prettiest. Then you'll set up the board. This is sort of an exploring game. So the game board is made up of these tiles of seven hexes. There's a starting tile, and then there's two tiles that are going to go out in sort of a V shape from it. The game board is really a big triangle. You start at sort of the vertex of the triangle, and there are two hexes out from that starting tile. And then as you explore, you're going to explore out in a triangle fashion and explore the wondrous continent that you are on. So you only start the game with three hexes down. The rest of the hexes just start in a stack. And if you're playing the intro scenario, which you should if you're just learning this game, the tiles come out in a specific order. There's a little number at the bottom of the tile. The first three tiles you'll see have an A, a 1, and a 2. And then when you explore your next tile for the first time, uh, that will be tile number 3. So you're going to stack up the, the tiles, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's a certain number of those green tiles you use based on the number of players. And then at the bottom of the deck, you're going to put these brown tiles. These are called core tiles. And the core tiles, some have castles and some don't. One of those three tiles, you're going to make a castle, and the other two, you will not. And you'll mix those brown tiles up and put them at the bottom of the stack. Because the intro scenario ends when you get to the tile with the castle on it. Everybody will get one more turn, and then that will be the end. Also, be aware that when the tiles connect, the tiles have to connect in a certain way. Don't forget this. The numbers have to face the bottom, and there's little stars and circles, and when you put them together, they should make little stars and circles at the corners, which will make very much sense when you see the tiles. 
you need to set up. There's this whole main player area that has the score track, a few decks of cards. You set all the monster chits next to it. And the walkthrough explains exactly how to set all these things up and has this very nice picture of it. One important board in this common game area is called the source board. There's a, a day side and a night side to the source board. And you have to make sure that the day side is face up to start the game. And then the source is made up of a number of dice that you're going to roll. In the game, you use 2 plus X, where X is the number of players. So 3 dice in a solo game, 4 dice in a 2-player game, 5 dice in a 3-player game, etc. You start the game by rolling these dice and putting them on the picture of the city or whatever is on that board. That represents the magic that's available to everyone to draw from. Then all the players will shuffle their starting deck. As I said, everyone has a common set of 15 cards and, and one special card. And so they'll shuffle those up face down. They'll draw five cards from that, and they can look at those. That's what they're going to be able to use on the first turn of the game. Then, in order to determine turn order, at the beginning of each of the rounds, there are these tactic cards. There are six of them. I get the day ones. There are six yellow cards. You put those face up, and you're going to randomly decide who gets to pick first. And they are numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And each of them have a special ability. The number 1 has no special ability. And as you go down the line, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, the special abilities get a little bit nicer. The reason for this is what happens is someone picks one of those. Say I pick the number 3 and it has a little special ability at the bottom. Then the next player will choose. The numbers on those cards say who gets to go first that turn. So you have to sort of weigh what's more important to you, whether you like the special ability or whether you want to pick a low number so that you can go first and maybe get an extra turn compared to the other guy or other players. So that's what we'll do first. We'll set up the map. We'll roll those dice. We'll draw five cards to pick our starting hand. And you want to do that before you pick your special ability because the cards in your hand might affect uh, which of those special abilities you want. Then you'll pick those tactic cards. You'll set the turn order. Everybody has a little marker so you can put those in order. Which person is first will go on top and you'll have your turn order set. And you're ready to begin your first round day one of the game. And now you're ready to start the game and take your turns. One of the most basic actions and important things to be able to do is to be able to move. So let's talk about how to move. So when it's your turn, as I said, you're going to have a hand of five cards, and you're going to spend those cards to do the actions in the game, such as moving on the board and fighting monsters. And the order goes, you can move as much as you want, if you want to move, and then you can do one action with the board. The actions are usually something like fighting with the monsters or talking to people in a village. But first, if you want to move, you have to move first. You start the game on a portal. Everyone starts on the same spot in the portal of this starting tile, and then you're going to move out down towards this triangle. Each of the hexes has a different terrain type. There's a bunch of these different terrain types. There's plains and hills and forest and desert and a few more. Each of the terrain types has a movement cost, and all of these move costs are on that source board. You'll see hexes of each of the different colors you'll see on the map. If you want to move on the green plains, the movement cost is two. The hills are three. The forest is three. The deserts and swamps are five. So you have cards in your hand. Some of them are move cards. The basic move cards say move two. 
So I could play one of those move cards down in front of me, and now I have two move points. I can move ahead to the green plains. If I want to move to the forest, I might have to play two of those move two cards. So now I have four movement points. I use three of them to move into the forest, and I have one extra move point. So if I want to play more move cards, I can to move additional spaces. When you move, you can't land on another player unless you're into some of those advanced games and you want to fight them. You can't land on them. Though if you have enough movement points, you can move through other characters. Next, the other thing that's important to know is there's some monsters on this board. In our starting board, you'll have two icons with swords on them. All the monsters in this game are on circular cardboard chits, and they're in of six different types. The, the green circles are the orcs, so you're going to get two of those chits and flip them up on the designated spots. And so there will be orcs on those hexes. Those are called marauding enemies. They are orcs, and they are terrorizing the land. And they get annoyed when people try to move around them. You can move on the hex next to them, but if you are in a hex next to them, and you move to another hex next to them, they get angry and they attack you. Your movement immediately stops, and you must fight them. So you're able to move in the hex next to them, or move away from them, but if you move from one hex adjacent to them to another hex adjacent to them, they're going to say, hey, we're going to fight you. Eventually, you'll get to the edge of the board. Now, remember I said the, the board is a triangle, and there's this beautiful picture in the rule book that you should look at that shows where the next tiles are going to come out. We're at the tipping point of the triangle. There will be two more hexes in front of that, and then as you explore, there will be three more hexes in the next layer, and there will be four more hexes in the next layer. So as you get to the edge of those two hexes that start on the board, you may explore and see what the next hex is. Exploring the next hex costs two of your movement points, so you have to play cards in order to do that. So you get the top tile of, of the tile stack and place it where it's supposed to go. You have to say which of the tiles in which of the blank spots that you're going to look at. You flip it over, make sure the orientation is right, and put it down. In the introductory scenario, you get one fame point for doing this. The fame track is the big track on the main player area. So you, you have a, each player has a little shield icon. You take your shield icon, you move it one point. You can split your move points among moving and exploring, and then you can move again. So you can spend as much of those movement points that you want to. You move, maybe get to the edge of the board. You spend two of those points to flip over a new tile. You have one movement point left, so you play another card to get a couple more movement points so you can move on to the next tile. The other thing that you can do, about, I don't know, a third of your cards or a fourth of your cards are move cards, and sometimes you don't have move cards and that makes you sad. Or maybe you just need one more movement point. Well, you have really nice flexibility in this game because you can use any of the normal cards and play them sideways. You play cards sideways to do any of the basic actions in the game for one point. You'll have attack cards and block cards and influence cards. And you can use any of those and play them down sideways and say, I'm going to use this as a move one. So say I wanted to move into that forest, I could play a move two, and I could play one of my attack cards sideways for one more movement point. So I had three movement points so that I could move into that forest. Now you're in a way sort of wasting the full potential of that card as it was an attack two and you used it as a move one, but sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. Don't forget, same thing for attacking, blocking, or influence. If you're attacking something and you need one more attack point, you could take a move card and play it sideways as an attack card. 
All right, so moving's kind of boring. You're a mage knight, right, with super magic powers. Let's talk about how you use your super magic powers. Unlike Team Umizumi, which my daughter Gwendolyn will tell you have mighty math powers, you have mighty magic powers. Similar, but different. Now, I haven't been entirely truthful about these cards because they actually have two different possibilities. They have a top part of the action. For example, the move cards say move two, and then they have a bottom card of the action, which is usually better. This one says move four. So one of the green cards, for example, it says move two, there's a funky green symbol, and then at the bottom it says move four. What does that mean? Well, since you are a powerful mage knight and have magic, you can use your magic to make your cards stronger. Remember how I said there's that source. Say you had two players. You're going to roll four of these source dice. And on the source dice, there's one of each of the basic colors in the game. Red, blue, white, and green. And then there's also a sun and a moon. So you'll roll those, and that is the available magic that's out there in the world. And on your turn, you can use one mana from that source. So you say, ooh, I want a green. Hopefully there's a green there. So you would take one of those green dice, and when you play the card, you'd set the green dice on there, and you say, I'm going to use the four movement points instead of move two. Now I might have a, a blue card in my hand that's move two, move four also, and there's a blue die there, and I'm like, oh, I want the blue one too. Nope. You may only use one die from the source each turn, and that's one of the most difficult decisions and interesting decisions in this game, is that you've got all these uh, cards with basic abilities and cool, super better abilities at the bottom, but you can really usually only use one of those bottom abilities every turn. And you really want to use one of those bottom abilities every turn, because if you're not, you're not fully using your turn to the best possibility. You really want to optimize your hand. So there's, there's one of each color. All the cards are either white, red, blue, or green. But there's also suns and moons. And these work different in the day and the nighttime. In the daytime, the suns are really good. Because any sun there it can be used as a wild. You can use it for any color. But during the daytime, the moons are terrible. They are dead dice. And if you roll a moon, it actually goes up in the corner of the source board, and that die is basically dead for the round. And so as you go throughout the round, you might get more of these moons, and because of that, you're going to have less and less options of, of source dice to choose from. Now, a lot of times you'll want to use more than one of the bottom half of these cards. And that's where these crystals come in. One of your basic cards is called Crystallize, and it lets you take one of the colors that are currently available, say there was a red die available, and you could take that and turn it into a crystal. Each player has a little player card, and there's a little box on that player card, and that's where they keep all of their stuff. And what Crystallize allows you to do is Take that red die and turn it into a crystal. There's these cool crystal pieces. You take one of those red plastic crystals and you put it on your player card. And now you can save that and use that for a future turn. So now next turn, I could use one die from the source and I could use my red crystal so I could use two super cards in a turn. And you could even store up, store up, so you could have a real super turn where you used four bottoms of your cards. You do have a limit in that you can only have three of each of the basic colors in your inventory. You can, most you can have is three red crystals and three blue crystals, three of each color. 
you're not allowed to have uh, the yellow crystals or, or black crystals. Those you can only have as mana. When the game is talking about mana, it's talking about magic that you have to use that turn. When it's talking about a crystal, it's talking about something that you're going to put on your little player storage area and you can save it from turn to turn. But that's how mana works. You can use one die from that source every turn. And at the end of your turn, you know how I use that green die? At the end of my turn, I'm going to pick up that die and I'm going to roll it and put it back on the source. So as play goes around the table, that source is going to constantly be changing and that moon, those moon dice are going to come up and start to kill all of the magic that's out there. And that's how mana works. Now let's talk about an action, but before we get to the fighting, let's talk about going to your local village and seeing how those friendly villagers can help you out. You don't want to fight all these monsters all by yourself. It'd be nice to have some friends. So you need to go to these villages and you need to say, would you like to be my Umi friend? Umi-rific! And then you go fight orcs and stuff. Now, at the start of the game, there's two friendly locations, and you should see two villages on the map. You'll probably want to visit those villages because they can help you heal. They can give you units to help you in your quest. There's other friendly places. Later in the game, we'll go to monasteries that work kind of the same way, where you can get uh, units to help you fight, and those places give you even more special abilities. You can actually get special cards and things. But to start with, you can only go to these villages. Now, how you get healed and get these fighting friends is you have to influence them. So that's where this other basic action comes into play, spending influence cards. You have a few cards in your basic deck that give you influence points. They'll say influence two, or the bottom might be influence four. When you start the game, one of the things you're really going to want to do is probably go to one of those villages and recruit someone to help you fight. At the beginning of the game, we lay out 2 plus X number of available units that are out there waiting for you to recruit and, and join your army, where X is the number of players. So one player, you're going to have three of these to start, and in a two-player game, you would have four of these different guys available to start. But these are only available in certain places. You have to look on the left side. They have an icon on them, and you're looking for the little house. That's the village icon. That means you can recruit those guys at the village. Some of those guys are only available at other places, like monasteries or, or mage towers. One of the basic units you could recruit at a village is the peasants. If you look in the upper left corner, that is the influence cost. That is how many influence points you'd have to spend in order to get them to join your side. So they have an influence cost of four. Maybe you had an influence card and you could spend mana in order to get it to the influence four side. You end your turn in the village, you play an influence four card, and now these peasants say, we will fight for you, we love you, yay! At the beginning of the game, you got one token. It's called a command token. And you're going to put these peasants in front of you, and right above them, you're going to put that command token. Now, that command token also represents how many of these units you may control. At the beginning of the game, you can only have one of these cards. As you level up, one of the abilities is to get more of these command tokens, so you could actually have two of these cards to help uh, fight for you, and, and you can throw them in front of orcs and stuff. But they're really going to help you throughout the game. I highly recommend visiting a village and trying to get one of these unit cards by spending influence points. 
How you do that is you pay influence cards. And then there's one more track in this game. In the upper right-hand corner of the score track, there's what's called the reputation track. And, and when you start the game, this starts at zero. But as you do different things in the game, this is going to go either up when you do nice things or down when you do naughty things. So, for example, when you kill orcs, you get plus one on this reputation track. And this reputation track has modifiers. It'll go up, plus one, plus two, plus three. It'll go down, minus one, minus two, minus three, depending on what space you're on. And whenever you try to influence in a village or a monastery or something like this, you always have to add this modifier to the total number of influence cards that you spend. So if you have a good reputation, it's going to make influencing easier. If you do naughty things, it's going to be harder to get these goodies because you have a bad reputation, much like Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. So if I wanted those peasants and I had already defeated an orc, I would have gone up on the reputation track, would have only had to pay an influence of three. In a village, you can recruit, as I just said. You can earn healing points, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the third action you can do in a village is you can plunder the village. This is one of the ways to go down in reputation. So if you're a, a naughty person and you want more resources, you can say, I'm going to take all your stuff. And what that does is you go down one spot on the reputation track and you get to draw two extra cards for your next turn. So those are the three things you can do in a village. Now, let's get to how to fight some bad guys, as that is the main objective of the game. All right, so let's get into combat. First of all, how does a combat start? We already talked about those marauding orcs. If you're adjacent to a marauding orc, at the end of your turn, you can say, I'm going to try to fight you. Let's go, orc guys. Or you'll have a mandatory fight if you're next to the orcs and then you move to another hex next to those same orcs. They'll say, we're fighting you, and you've got a combat started. Later in the game, dragons work the same way. There are lots of different kinds of sights on the different tiles, and there's two different sites that you'll encounter just to lump them into general categories. There are sites that you have to conquer, like the keep and the mage tower, and when you have one of those tiles, you'll put a, a defender tile of that tile's type, like a keep tile in there. When you get next to it, you get to see what that defender is, and then you can try to conquer that so that you can get the points for killing the monsters, and you can get some goodies if you have a site that you've conquered. One note about that conquering, that this is one of those naughty things. The locals don't seem to like it when you storm into their castles and take control of them. So whenever you try to conquer one of these places, you go back one on the reputation track. And the next way you'll, you might have a fight is there are sites called adventure sites, and you can go onto these hexes, and they have places like a, a monster den or a dungeon. And you can, if you want to, go inside the monster den or the monster dungeon and see what monster's in there and fight it in order to get the fame for that monster and the rewards that it offers. So th those are the three basic types. You're either going to challenge or have a mandatory fight with a marauding enemy. You will try to conquer a site or if you will go inside of a hex, say, all right, I'm going to go in this dungeon that's on this hex. That's how you have fights. Now let's look at how a combat works.
All right, so I will strip combat to its most basic level. I'll look at the dorkiest orc there is, the prowlers, and we'll look at a, a pretty normal fight. The monsters are going to attack you first. They're going to smack you, and you have to try to block that or take damage, and then you're going to get to use your attack guards to try to kill the monster. That's it. That's the basics of combat. So, basic monster has uh, three important stats. The left side of the tile, and they're on these round cardboard discs that fit in the hexes. The attack is on the left side of the disc. The armor of the monster is at the top, and the points you get for beating them is on the bottom. So this orc prowler has an attack strength of four. There's a four with a fist on it. So you have two options. You can either block it or you can take that damage. To block it, you have to come up with at least four worths of blocks. If you come up with three or two blocks, it does nothing. It's either all or nothing. They're either going to hit you or not. So I might have a block two card or I might use the mana for a block card to make it a block four card. Or I might use two regular blocks in order to block that. Or this is where those units come in handy. You can use them. A lot of them have blocking or attacking abilities. For example, one of the abilities of the peasants is to attack or block two. So I could choose to use them to block two and play a card that lets me block two. When you activate your unit, you know, your units are kind of lazy. They only want to work once per day or once per night. And to represent that they have been used for that round, you take the command token and you put it on top of the card. And now the peasants are tired, and that command token will go back on top of the card so they're ready to be used at the beginning of the next night. Or if you have a special card that lets you ready them, that's called readying the unit. So I have to come up with four blocks. If I do, they blocked. They, they won't hurt me. Hooray. Or either I choose not to or I can't because I simply don't have enough cards or abilities. Uh, come up with a block strength of four. Don't forget, you can use sideways cards for block ones to, to get what you need. But if I choose not to block or I can't, then I'm going to take damage. So let's say I didn't or couldn't block. His strength is of attack 4. At the beginning of the game, my armor is strength 2. That means I take a wound for every 2 points of damage that I don't block. So since this is a strength of 4, 2 plus 2 is 4. That's going to do 2 wounds to me. So I get these wound cards. There's a big stack of them in the main player area. They have a big red drop of blood on them. I take them and I put those into my hand. And those make me sad because I never get to discard those cards. Those are going to stay in my hand. And when I refill my hand up to five, I'm going to have two wound cards and three normal cards. So instead of five cards to work with every turn, I will only have three. And so as you can see, getting wounds is bad. The other option I can do is say I have those peasants that I recruited earlier. I could assign some of that damage to the peasants. The peasants have an armor value. They have actually an armor of three. So they would absorb three of the attack and there's still one point worth of attack to deal with. And so I would have to put that on me. So the peasants would get wounded. I take a wound card, put it under them, and I would get one wound instead of the two. When your units are wounded, they can no longer use their abilities. They just kind of sit there until you heal them. And you can wound them even if they've already been used. You, you have the token on them. 
but once they are wounded, you can't use them anymore. But if you fail to block something, you are going to take a minimum of one wound somewhere, either on your units or to you. Probably more. You're going to take the strength of the attack, divide it by your armor, and round up. So if I had an attack of three coming at me, and I have an armor of two, I take three divided by two, that's uh, one remainder one, so I, I round up. So that's going to be two wounds. Now, the monster, if they do enough wounds to you, and some of them have the ability to do this, they can knock you out. If you take wounds in a combat equal to your hand size at the beginning of the game, this is five. If you take to yourself five or more wounds, you are considered knocked out. That means you have to discard all the non-wound cards in your hand, and you don't get to fight back, which is terribly bad. If you're not knocked out and you're damaged, or if you block the attack, you may now try to kill the monster by playing attack cards. This is pretty simple, so you look at the armor of the monster. My orc prowlers have an armor of three. I need to come up with three points worth of attack cards. So maybe I, I play a card with an attack of two, and maybe I play another card sideways for another attack of one to kill it. Or I use an attack card and use the mana to pump it up. So I want to be able to kill it. If you can't kill it, most of the time, you get to decide whether you're going to attack something. You're going to want to make sure you can kill something before you would engage it in combat. And most of the time, you can plan all that out and figure out whether, you know, what's going to happen. If you know what you're fighting, you can figure out, you know, how much damage you're going to take, if you're going to take damage, and if you're going to be able to kill it. So this is part of that thing that takes a long time on your turn, is puzzling those sorts of things out. If I attack that orc, what's going to happen? So once you kill it, the bottom number has a pendant on it. That's how many fame points you get. You get to move your marker on the big fame point track, and fame points are essentially victory points. They help you win the game, so that's good. Also, these fame points are on lines, and every time you get to a new line, you're going to level up and become more powerful. We'll talk about that more in just a second. If you can't beat it, usually the monster will just stay there. If you're trying to conquer a tile, you had to move into that tile to attack it, then you'll have to move back. And there might be some special rules depending on which site you're at. But either it's going to stay there, or you're going to have to run back to the site where you attacked it from. Now, usually that's how it works. They're going to attack you first, you're going to block it, and then you're going to try to kill it. There are some special kind of attack cards. These are called ranged attacks and siege attacks. And these are like pre-attack attacks. Imagine you have a crossbow and you get to shoot them before they come and get to you. So you can play all these ranged attacks first. And if you can range attack equal to the creature's armor, you can just play those ranged attacks down, kill it, battle over. Hooray! That doesn't happen very often because there's not a lot of those ranged attacks and siege attacks. Also, when you play cards sideways, you can only get basic attacks. You can't get ranged attacks or siege attacks. Why is there ranged attacks and siege attacks? Ugh, thematic reasons. If you're trying to conquer something like a keep or a, a tower, you can't use the ranged attacks because you, know, you can't shoot a crossbow at someone who's in a castle. You can only use the siege attacks. If they're not at one of these sites that you're trying to conquer, for example, those orcs that are just out there in the forest, you can use a combination of the range attacks and the siege attacks to kill them before the battle starts. But you have to get 
all of the armor. You can't just you can't just range attack halfway. If you only have range attack two and they have an armor of three, well then you're gonna have to wait for them to hit you first, and you can use range attacks as normal attacks when it gets to be your turn to try to kill them. Same thing with siege attacks. You can use siege attacks as just regular attacks during the attack phase. Also, on the armor, they might have special defense icons. Look for any special icons. There's a wonderful chart on the back of the rulebook that goes over exactly what any of those special abilities do. For example, one of them on the armor, it's like a pentagon with a fist in it. That means physical resistance. That means all regular attacks are cut in half, which is really annoying. There is also things like fire attack and ice attacks. And when someone hits you with a fire attack, all regular blocks are cut in half. You need, guess what? An ice block to fully block a fire attack and a fire block to fully block an ice attack. Regular blocks are cut in half. But as you reveal these monsters, you should look carefully for any of those special abilities, check in the rulebook what they do, and make sure to explain to the players what all those special abilities do. Almost every monster has at least one of these, and, and some of the abilities are on the right part of that tile, like swift or brutal or poisonous or paralyzed. So, so be sure to be aware of those icons before you start a fight. But that's how the attacks work. They attack you, you try to block it. If you can't, you take damage. Then you kill them and you get points. Let's talk about what you do at the end of your turn. So the end of your turn, the first thing you have to do is if you used a mana die, you have to pick that up and roll it and then put it back in the source. And then you can turn to the next player and say, it's your turn, you can start as you do any of the other cleanup stuff on your turn. Now it's going to take a while till you get to this uh, this kind of proficiency. As you do your first couple of turns, you're probably going to want to wait for everybody to process everything. But as you get better at the game, you're going to want to do that because it's going to really cut the playtime of the game down. So what else do you do at the end of your turn? You take all those face-up cards that you played that turn, you take them up and you put them in a discard pile. You also take, if you use any crystals, you put those back in the common pool. Then you're going to take any rewards you got from fighting. Some of the sites have special rewards that you get. For example, if you conquer a mage tower, you get a free spell. And you actually have three to choose from. So instead of holding up the game, you can do this after people go. Same thing when you level up. A lot of times when you level up, you'll have a decision to make of which goodies to take. And that can take some time, which is why you do it while the other person is playing their turn. Now, there's two different kinds of level up. And they alternate to what I'm going to call level up one and level up two. And so the first kind of level up, and these are distinguished by icons on that fame track. The first kind of level up has a deed deck card and a rectangle. And the second kind of level up has an octagon with a shield in it. So level up kind one means you're going to get an advanced action card. So you start the game with these 16 uh, normal cards. Everybody has the same kind of deck. But the game has these super advanced action cards. There's a deck of them, and you flip the first three over. And when you level up, you get to look at those three, and you may pick one of those three. And usually they're like the basic cards, but they're a little bit better. So you're going to look at which one of those and, and see which one you like the best. Like instead of a move two, normal move two card, there's a one that lets you move two and heal one. 
some of, some of them, they let you play them and you just get a crystal, which is nice. Instead of just a normal block two, there's an ice block three. And the bottom part is even even fancier. So you can see these um, advanced action cards are really kind of fun. And they allow you to customize your deck as you go throughout the game. The second thing you get is you get a skill. Each individual character has these 10 little cardboard rectangles. And uh, what you do is you mix them up, you put them face down. And when you get one of these level ups, you flip the top two over and you look at those weird icons. And there's actually a little reference card that explains what those two different skills do. And then you can pick one. The one you do not pick goes in sort of a, a common pool by the, the main player board. And when players advance they can actually choose the ones that they have or they can choose from this common pool that's out there they are penalized a little bit by choosing one of the other players or one of the ones in the common pool because instead of getting their free choice of the three action cards they have to take the bottom action card so that's what the first level up does you get to pick one of three uh, action cards and when you take that action card, it actually goes on top of your deck, guaranteeing that you're going to get to use it immediately in your next turn. And then you're going to have the two cardboard chits with the special abilities to choose from, and you're going to pick one of those, and then you can start using that. They might be something that affects you constantly, or it might be something you can do once per round, or it might be something you can use once per turn. It really depends on the ability, but they're all kind of fun, and they let you really customize your character. Remember, you can choose one of the, the other ones that was not chosen by other players if you take the penalty of taking the bottom advanced card instead of choice of the three. The level up two is a little bit more simple. At the beginning of the game, you have this stack of command tokens and you put them in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And when you get to level three, you get to take off uh, the top command token. And what that does is three things. First of all, you have another command token. So now, instead of just being able to recruit one villager, you can have up to two of these fighting units that you can get from villages or monasteries or, or from the keeps or mage towers. You can grow your army as it is. But also, on the main one that's on your, on your player card there, there's two icons on that command token. And that's a hand limit and your armor strength. And as you go down those command tokens, your hand limit is going to go up from 5 to 6 and then to 7. And your armor is going to go up from 2 to 3 and then to 4. So your stats, as it is, are going to improve. And being able to have you know, 6 cards in your hand as opposed to 5 is pretty nice. So that's how the level up works. When you go down there, it's the end of your turn. You're either going to do one of two things. You're going to take an action card and a skill. Or, depending on if you're on the second line, you're going to flip up the next command token and be able to use that. And that's going to increase your stats and allow you to increase the size of your army. If you do take one of those advanced action cards from leveling up, or you do get a spell from as a reward, after you take that, that spell or the advanced action cards, those sort of have a track of three face-up cards that go down the row. So you'll always have three available face-up cards. So when you take one, you slide the other two down and you flip over a new one. The unit offer works a little different. Those guys that are available to be hired at villages and towns and such, those are only totally 
totally refilled at the end of each round. So once they're gone, they're gone. You have to wait till nighttime till more guys show up at the villages and keeps and things. After you're done with all that, and most turns you won't level up. But at the end of your turn, you may discard any number of cards in your hand if you really don't like them or you just see that they're not going to help you. But usually you don't really want to because you can always at least play them sideways. Then you draw up to your hand limit and then you're ready to go for the next turn. What you should do if you're playing a two or three player game is start planning on what you're going to do next turn. But because we just talked about combat, now we got to figure out once you get wounded, how do you deal with that? So now you may have some of those wounds, and, and that's just going to happen, especially if you're, you're trying to move faster than the other players and, and be competitive. Sometimes you just got to take a hit. You could have wound cards in your hand or your units. You could have assigned the damage to your units, and then once they're wounded, they can't do anything until they get healed. So let's talk about how to heal. In order to heal, you need healing points, and there's two ways to do that. You can have cards in your deed deck that give you healing. There's one of the basic cards that, that will heal you. It's heal one on the top and heal two on the bottom. And you can also pay influence to get healing at certain locations like the village or the monastery. And the nice thing about healing is you can really do it any time during your turn. You can do uh, before you move. You can do it after you fight a monster. But before the end of your turn, you can play these healing cards and just, just do it when you need to do it. If you have one healing point, you can get rid of, in uh, Dominion speak, I guess the, the word would be trash, a card in your hand, a wound card. So if I play a heal one and I have a wound card in my hand, I move that card in my hand to the wound stack back in the main player area, not in my discard pile. It's gone forever. Hooray! And the good news about that is then when I draw cards, now I can have a full hand of cards again instead of being penalized. I can heal my units almost the same way. Now it depends on the strength of the unit. The unit's strength is represented by a, a Roman numeral, and the basic units are either Roman numeral 1 or Roman numeral 2. The peasants, for example, are Roman numeral one. With one healing point, I can heal my peasants. So I, I play my heal card, I take the wound card, I trash it, I put it back in the, the main player area, and now my peasants are ready to fight another day. Say I had a stronger unit, like the Utem Swordsmen. They are a, a level two unit, and that's what it's called, is the, the levels. And in that case, I would actually need two heal points in order to heal this guy. And the other reason that, that healing the units is important is these units are actually worth points at the end of the game, but only if they are unwounded. You need them unwounded so that you can attack or block with them and take more wounds, but also if they're unwounded, they're worth points at the end of the game. The other way to get rid of wounds, at least temporarily, is to rest. When you rest, you don't move or take an action. Your only action is to discard cards. You have to discard one non-wound card, and then you can discard as many wounds as you want, and that's your turn. Hopefully, you don't have to do this because it really stinks to, to waste a turn. If your hand is full of wound cards, then you are exhausted and you have no choice. And at the beginning of the next turn, you just discard one wound and you may not move or take an action. That's really bad. If this happens, you've done something wrong. <laughs> 
All right, so that's the basics. You know how to move, to talk to the locals, to fight, and to heal. And now let's just get into some final notes. So as I said, the walkthrough is very good. You are ready and armed to start that uh, introductory scenario. And the beautiful thing about this walkthrough is that the tiles are in a specific order. And as you uncover each new tile, it has one new location that we haven't talked about yet with a, a new rule. But a lot of times they're similar to things we've already talked about, like the village or the orcs. And so as you uncover each tile, you can just read the rules, explain those to your players, and you'll be good to continue. And with, with each monster, again, just be sure to check any special abilities that they have and check the chart to make sure that you, you know what those are before you go in and fight them. Another important point is it mentions specifically in the rule book on what they call reverting and what I call takebacks. You are allowed takebacks in this game and you probably will have to do a lot of takebacks in figuring out your optimal play in, in the turn because you're going to figure out all these things of what you're going to do in your turn before you're done. So I might think I'm going to move somewhere, think I'm going to fight, decide that fight doesn't really work out. I take it all back and start my turn over again. The only thing you can't do is you can't do takebacks once you've revealed new information. For example, if I explore a tile, I flip that tile, I don't like the look of it, and I say, you know what, I'm not going to explore that tile. Cheating, can't do it. If you go to a location and you're, you say, I'm going to fight a monster that's face down, some of the adventure sites, you don't get to see what the monsters are, so you have to flip them over But uh, when you decide to attack. And obviously, once you decide to flip that over, you're committed to fighting that monster. You can't look at it and then say, oh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and do something else this turn. Cheating can't do that. But as long as you, you haven't revealed anything new that the situation hasn't changed, you can sort of replay your whole turn as much as you want to until you find the right answer, or at least until your table mates get annoyed. Whereas in my case, I like playing this game solo because I can take back my turn 37 times till I figure out what the best play is. All right, so when does the round end? Just a reminder. A round goes basically until people cycle through their deck. And, you know, it's something like five or six turns people will get through their deck normally. And when their draw deck is out and the next turn, they could say, I'm declaring the end of the round. And that is their turn. And then everyone else gets one more turn. And then that's the end of the round. I could have an empty draw deck and decide to keep playing because I have, say, maybe four or five good cards in my hand I still want to play. But as soon as your draw deck is empty, that makes you eligible to declare it. So what do you do? You reshuffle your deed deck, you draw a new hand, you refresh the uh, unit offer of what like peasants are available and such. You're going to cycle through the advanced cards and the spells. You're going to put one of each of the available ones, sink it to the bottom of the deck and flip a new one. You're going to flip over that source from the daytime, you're going to change it to the nighttime, and then you're going to re-roll all those dice so we have a fresh source. And then the next round is going to be nighttime. In nighttime, there's a few thematic differences, and you'll notice that on the movement board. The forests now go from a three to five points, and the deserts become easier to move through. They go from five points in the day to three points at night. The suns and the moons change in the magic. Now the suns are worthless. Makes sense, right? So if you roll the suns, those go in the corner of the board and they're worthless. You can't use them for wilds anymore. 
What are the moons for? Well, you have to use a moon in order to get the super bottom half of a spell. And you're probably not going to get spells for a little while. You get spells from, from the mage towers and, and as rewards for certain other uh, locations in the game. But that's how the, the moons work. They, they make your spells super spells. The last thing, if it's nighttime, there's some different rules about when you get to see some of the chits on the board. And it will explain that when you get to the sites, and it will tell you whether you get to flip them face up or face down, whether it's daytime or nighttime. But uh, just pay attention that the rules are a little bit different if it's day or night. So how does the game end? All the scenarios have different objectives that uh, the, the end of the game happens here and in this introductory scenario when you get to the end of that stack of tiles one of the last three tiles has a castle on it and when you flip that over everybody gets one more turn uh, so that could be about two rounds maybe somewhere between the third round it should be if players keep progressing and and moving it forward the rules of the scenario say it actually lasts two days and one night and i would actually recommend sort of ending it after three rounds that introductory introductory scenario if it doesn't end just because the whole purpose is you just want to learn what all the things are you're not really playing for a score it's just definitely more of a learning game but the longer scenarios last three days and three nights. The shorter scenarios, two days and two nights. And as I said earlier, it could be you know between three and five hours, depending on the number of players and, and how quickly you're playing. But that's the length of the game. You either hit that trigger or you hit the end of the number of rounds. And then it's time to simply score things up. Most of your points are the points you've earned throughout the game, but there are also one, two, three, four, five, six. There are six different titles that you can earn. There are six different categories for things. You get points for all of these different things, but you also get uh, bonus points if you're the player who got the most in that particular category. For example, the first thing you do is you, when the end of the game comes, you sort up out all your deck into the cards that started your deck, the wounds, the advanced action cards you got from leveling up or, or other ways, and the spells, and also the artifacts. Artifacts are another type of card you can earn at particular sites because all of those special cards that you earned and put in your deck are also worth victory points. So the first category is Greatest Knowledge, which gives points for spells and advanced action cards, and the player who scores the most points gets three bonus points. And if there's players tied, then each of the tied players get one. The other categories work the same way, pretty much. Uh, the loot is points for artifacts, and crystals you have left over are worth points. The next category is leader. This is points for how many units you control and the strength of those units. The next category is conqueror. That's for all the sites you conquer, like the keep and the mage tower, whoever did the most of those. The next one is adventurer, whoever did the most adventure sites, which are sites like the monster den and the dungeon. And the last one is actually a negative uh, point modifier. It's called the greatest beating. And you get negative points for the each wound card you have in your deck at the end of the game. And you get a, a negative 
bonus, a penalty, I guess, for the person who has the most wounds in their deck. So those are all the things you get points for. And because they're distributed in categories like that, you really should be shooting for, you know, say, all right, I'm going to try to win these two categories and, and remember that. Now, maybe not in your first game because you're not really caring about points. But as you play the game the second time, the full game, you really should be thinking about and keeping in mind those categories. But that's it. You add those points to the points you'd earn throughout the game for killing monsters, and the player with the most fame points is the victorious Mage Knight and wins the game. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. All right, let me try, try to give some strategy. I've played this a handful of times, but at least I can try to help you avoid some, some rookie mistakes. So the main concept of this game and the, the main puzzle of this game is optimizing the hand that you get dealt. And you sort of have to play with that hand that you're dealt and not just sort of what you want to do. You know, if you have attack cards, you're going to probably have to attack. If you have a bunch of influence cards, you should find a way to use those. Get to a village, get to a monastery. Because if you, if you burn them as sideways cards, you're not playing your hand very efficiently. The other thing about efficiency is you're given that one bonus card every turn. And I already mentioned this, but you really want to think. And, and that's probably, I, I think, one of the most interesting decisions that you make each turn is, what's the best way to use that bonus card this turn? And maybe the answer is you know, to, to crystallize it so you've got two on the following turn. The next important point is to, as you move across the board, just don't move across the board. Remember that one of the most important things that you're trying to do is fight monsters to get points. So as you move across the board, if there's monsters in the way, stop and kill them uh, for two reasons. One, you're, you're killing them to get points, but also it's going to make you stronger so you're able to handle the more difficult monsters as the game progresses. Similarly, uh, you're going to get these influence cards in your hand, and you might as well use them. If there's a town along the way and you've got these influence cards in your hand, you might as well try to go Use those influence points to get your full use out of them. My next tip for you is that this is a very public information game. I mean, there are some things hidden, and one of the big changes is if you're going into a battle with face-up monsters against a battle with a random face-down monster. If you're going up against a, a face-up monster like an orc, you should plan it all out. Look in your head and say, all right, how am I going to block that? And then how am I going to attack it? What cards is it going to cost me? Is this going to be a good situation for me in the end? And you should be able to, to figure that all out. Now, it's not the most easiest thing to figure out. You may have some choices into how you fight that battle, but you're able to look at that monster, look at your hand, and figure out exactly how it's going to work. Now, those face-down monsters, a lot of times those adventures, they're a little bit more of a risk because you don't know what you're go going in for. But, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to see that if you're going to go into a battle, obviously, you're going to want to make sure that you have you know a decent amount of attack and block cards in your hand and probably have that mana available to be used you know if you burn your mana on walking to the spot then you probably might not want to fight that turn you might want to save it till the next turn so you can use your your super card on attacking or blocking 
The next thing is to pay attention of the timing of the round. A sneaky opponent could be burning through their, their deck very quickly. And if you don't pay attention to that, you get so wrapped up in what you're playing on your turn and trying to, you know, trying to play two or three cards in your hand and being really conservative. If the round ends and you have four or five cards left in your deck, that's a bad situation. You haven't probably played this round the best that you could have. So you do need to pay attention. You don't really need to pay attention to a lot, especially if there's not player versus player combat. You just need to know, you know, where are they going and how many cards are left in their deck. But that is an important piece of information. Finally, focus on what scores you points. Killing monsters is the number one way to do that. And also those fame point categories that I talked about in the end, especially in your second game. Say, all right, I'm going to go for these two. And then that can really guide your strategy. Or if you notice one of the other players seems to be doing a lot of conquering, you might say, all right, it's not as valuable for me to do that. I'm going to uh, be the adventurer guy instead. Goes back to my old axiom that I haven't said for, for a little while. Do what the other players aren't doing and trying to earn those different titles. But that's all the advice I have for you. I hope you enjoy that, figuring out how to best optimally play your hand and where to use your, your special super card. And there's a lot of interesting decisions to be made each and every turn, whether you decide to, to play it on your own or with a friend. I hope you enjoy this as much as I have. Good luck and have fun exploring the countryside and killing and thwarting the monsters of Mage Knight. Part 4. Footnotes. Alright, so a few footnotes here. I did not go over every rule in this game. Uh, this would be far too long of an episode. And as I said, they did a really nice job with the walkthrough in that first game. The walkthrough book is set up perfectly to help you learn each of the rules for all of those different locations and, and to really guide you as you learn all of the many plentiful rules in this game. So just be, you know, just be cognizant of that. Use that walkthrough book to help you as well. Some of the things don't come up in the intro scenario, like there's gold units. Most of the regular units, like the peasants, are silver-colored backs, and the special units are gold-colored backs. And the other scenarios, as you get deeper into the scenario, you then switch over to doing half-and-half half silver and gold units, and the units are a little more interesting and a little more powerful. One of the other things that can come up, and it can come up in your intro game, is it is possible to end up fighting more than one enemy. For example, if you've got those orcs on either side of you and you decide to walk through them, then suddenly you're going to be fighting two orcs at once. And basically, how does that fighting work? Exactly how I described it, except instead of just one monster hitting you, they both hit you first. Or it could be three monsters or four monsters. They all hit you first. You have to block everything that you can, uh, take, take damage for all the things that come through, and then you get to attack and kill as much as you, you can. There are a whole host of scenarios in the back of the book, so check those out. As I said, there's, there's longer, there's shorter ones. There's ones that are designed to be cooperative, where the players work together. Ones that are designed to be competitive, where the players, it's really designed to have the players go after each other. In fact, there is rules for player versus player combat. I'm not going to get into that at all uh, for the simple reason that 
I've never done it and I've never played it that way yet. Uh, maybe I will give that a shot at some point, but this is probably something you're not going to want to get into really till maybe your, your third game of this or so, as there's so much to learn as the game is already. But uh, if that's something you're interested in, having the game be more competitive and actually you know, attacking the other person, there's rules for doing that. Also, the solo game. I should mention a little bit about how that works. I mentioned that an important part of the game is that the length of the round is dictated by the players. So in the solo version of the game, there's sort of a a robot that uh, times the length of those rounds. How the solo game works is you pick another character. It really, it doesn't matter that much which one you pick and you take their basic deck and every time it's their turn, you flip up uh, three to five cards, uh, depending on this this rule set that's there. You're going to flip a variable number of cards each turn, and when they run out of cards, they declare the end of the round, and then it's over. So you have a, a pretty good idea of how long the round's going to take. The, the dummy player is not as fast as a, a human player, especially one, sometimes a human player might take it as a strategy to burn through their deck really fast. The dummy player won't do that. It's a pretty predictable speed, and you can actually count how many turns you have left, but the element of, of that being there is important because if you were allowed to play as many turns as you wanted to, it would make the game less interesting. So you have this dummy deck that's flipping over. At the end of the round, actually, you're going to add cards to that dummy deck from the advanced action cards and the spell cards and so it's going to eat up some of those cards as well as uh, change change their deck and and how they go through the deck but just refer to the section in the rules of how to uh, set up that player's deck you're also available to choose from the dummy player's skills Uh, one of their random one pops up so it gives you some different skills to choose from but that's how the solo game works. There are specific solo scenarios. You can also use the, the regular scenarios and play them as solo scenarios if you want to. Then there are the cooperative scenarios. Now, I haven't gotten to one of these um, cooperative city scenarios yet, but there's actually rules for when you get to later in the game. The game with, comes with these cool castles. And for many of these scenarios, the, the object is to conquer these castles. And in order to conquer them, they... They usually have like three or four monsters that you have to fight at a time. So you have to get to be very strong to take one of these down. In the cooperative scenarios, you're actually allowed to do these attacks at the same time, which sounds like a lot of fun. So you and your your friend can attack at the same time and you would have two players against uh, three monsters by the game. There's a ton of variants in the game, some to make the game a little more friendly. Uh, there's, there's some ru- adds even more rule exceptions to make the game a little more thematic. You can auction the heroes. There's a drafting uh, variant at the start. And so there's innumerable options provided within this box, which is, which is really nice. Uh, there's hours and hours of enjoyment to be had within this box. Uh, I think it's a, a very fine game. If you if you like, you're looking for the kind of game experience that we've talked about. A game for uh, a low player count, probably one or two players or, or maybe three players that already know the game very well and you like sort of that, that puzzly aspect of uh, figuring out your t- your cards each turn and it does a really nice job with all of these, these fun thematic elements that it brings into it. It's really... A good example of how to use all of these these modern tools that we have, all the great games that have been invented you know, in the last 10 years, and combine it to put out a really good product. So kudos to you, Vlada Shavato. 
But that's going to about do it for me for this month. Thank you once again for tuning in to the How to Play podcast. If this was your first How to Play adventure, well, we have uh, 40 other episodes for you to, to go check out. So I hope you'll do that. And if you benefited from this, show me. Show me by making a PayPal donation at my website, howtoplaypodcast.com. Lastly, a quick shout out that Tom Vassell's game, Nothing Personal, is coming out on Kickstarter here this month. And he was gracious enough to include me in the game. I have my own card. I'm a gangster. So uh, check that out. I put that up at the guild and look into that this month. Backing Mr. Vassell's game, Nothing Personal. But that will do it for this fall episode of the How to Play podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of the weekend here with my family and enjoying the great month that is October and and trick-or-treating and all that. So I I hope you all have a great October and I hope you'll tune in next month in November when I come back with another great game. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to the great How to Play supporters of the West. As a thank you to you, I, I didn't sing this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. All right, so here's what they should have had for the characters. Um, I, I, I think the two normally guys, I don't mind them so much. I don't like that blood cultist or that dragon. So here's, here's what we're missing. Instead, we need, we need a dwarf. We need a dwarf. Why was there no dwarf? I guess there's no, no mage knight dwarves. And the blood cultist was female, so maybe it was a female dwarf. That would have been that would have been even better. Everyone loves female dwarves. But you know what we're really missing? Instead of having that human dragon thing, it should have been some sort of a some sort of a halfling or a gnome. I love gnomes. I love gnomes. I love gnomes. Whenever I play D and D, always a gnome. Why wasn't there a gnome? There can be a mage knight gnome. He could. It could be a master of illusion and cast my favorite spell, Grease, or or Tasha's hideous laughter. There definitely should have been a gnome. That's the worst thing about this game. No gnomes. No gnomes. Maybe there'll be an expansion with a gnome. I hope so. I will buy it. If uh, WizKids, if you make an expansion with a gnome, I, I will buy it. So there we go. Mage Knight, the expansion, now featuring gnomes with grease spells and the insert made me really sad really sad i had to throw out all the other stuff because it was all broken and stuff except for the castle insert hmm bad inserts are frustrating but not as frustrating as no gnomes there's no excuse for that i wonder if there's any gnomes in that that mage knight clicky game probably not 
You know, my favorite gnome character's name was Chester Miracle. And actually, I, I wish I could claim credit for that name, but uh, it was the name of my elderly math teacher at the University of Minnesota. I thought it was was the greatest name ever. It was just meant to be a gnome illusionist name, really. Chester Miracle. And in fact, it hearkened me back to those days when, when one of my supporters, his name is Robert Miracle, and I wondered if maybe he was related to, to my math teacher. And um, I wonder if Robert likes gnomes.